TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. Marcus Pearcey with you, and as always, it gives me great pleasure to bring on the country's premier wellness expert. He is the food guru, the chiropractic champion. He has introduced me to an incredible book that we are going to talk about today by interviewing a remarkable human being. I speak of none other than my brother from another mother, the great Dr. Damien Christoph. Hello, legend. Hello, legend. Oh, gee, I love your introductions every single time. But we're doing this with Zoom today. We've upgraded our technology, gone from Skype to Zoom, and I can see you, and which means you can't pick your nose. You're not able to scratch little holes. You're not allowed to do that. You can't be picking out earwax. You can't even be plucking hairs from your nose either. You can't do these things this time around. So uh, it is so great to see you in the flesh as well as speak to you. This is so 2020 right now, I'm telling you. Uh, while well, we're you're rubbing up. it in for everyone that will be listening on a podcast whilst they're going for a walk. They won't get to see me pluck my nose hairs and get the <laughs> wax out of my ears. They won't get to do that. So why would oh. you do that? But whilst we can see each other, you yeah. tell the story about courage to care because if it wasn't for you and your love of golf, yes. we would not be having this conversation with this inspiring woman, which we're about to speak to in just a moment. Ah, oh, all right. Let me tell you about my beautiful mate, Morris Efron. He's such an amazing man. Uh, I bumped into Morris, uh, it must be close to 11 years ago now, um, and he came to see me when I was working in Middle Park, and he said, Damo, tell me his health history, blah, 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 tried to help him out, and I was helping him out, and then, he, long story short, we've become mates, and so we started playing golf together, and he said, come and play at Cranbourne, he told me the story of Cranbourne, his, gra- his grandfather, Morris Efron, he's also Morris Efron, he, he was one of the original 50-odd um, Jewish men that contributed their money to actually open up the Cranbourne Golf Course. And he said to me, Damien, I've got so many stories of amazing Jewish people. You should get them on your podcast. And I said, okay, I will do that. I'll do that. And he said, actually, I'm going to get you some books. And he brought me these books. And, um, and he brought me Courage to Care, Volume 1, and Courage to Care, Volume 2. And bit by bit, you and I have been reading them. And you've also got a copy, which I love. Okay. And yep. um, it's the greatest gift that Morris has ever given me. Because I mean, apart from Morris being in my life, which is an amazing gift. But the books are an amazing gift and it's an amazing gift to humanity to read these books. So I love them. Anyway, you have done some investigative work to find some of the people that are in there. So, But thank you, Morris, for giving me those. <laughs> yeah, big shout out to Morris. Now, um, so as you said, this book has come into our lives and at this coronavirus crazy time, I'm becoming <laughs> more determined than ever to can absorb just information of contrast. So I've been reading a lot about wars and the war just because I want to have regular reminders that we are in a very, um, we live very privileged lives. This coronavirus pandemic is so different to a war. And so I read a great book recently called The Note Through the Wire. And then last night I'm like, what will I read next? Will I read a business book or another story or whatever? And I'm like, no, I'm going to read um, courage to care. It's one of those books on the shelf. I'm like, I flick through it and all the rest of it, but I'm going to start at the beginning. And I started at chapter one and started reading about this incredible woman called Gila Lita. And I tell you what, it's a remarkable story. And then I just do as I tend to do. I start Googling the people that I'm reading about. And as it turns out, Damo, Gila moved to Adelaide, uh, I think when she was seven, 
and then uh, became an adjunct professor um, uh, now at Monash University. Uh, she was being awarded um, the in the Queen's Birthday Honours. She's um, AM. What's AM stand for these days? It's not um, Order of Australia. What's AM, Damo? Hmm. I don't know. We'll have to Gila ask Gila. Will tell us in a moment. Um, <laughs> but you, you read about these remarkable human beings and you see that most people would think they're leading these normal lives. But when I tell you this, if you can visualise this for a moment and, and listen and visualise this, listeners, May 1940, the Nazis are invading and occupying the Netherlands. 19 months later, December 1941, Gila is born to Aaron and Lisa. Now, Aaron and Lisa are, have actually had a child previously, but this child only lived to the age of six weeks. And you can imagine what it would have been like being born a Jewish baby in those times in a, in a, in a European country occupied by the Germans. And what do Gila's parents do? They decide during the height of the war to actually send Gila to a Catholic family with seven other children where she lives for a number of years and essentially lives this life with the Catholics. Um, fast forward many years, there are just so many sliding doors moments and the best part of it is that Gila Lita is here to share her story with us today. We now are very privileged to go down to Malvern, just down the road from you, Damo, in Melbourne, to bring on Gila Lita to 100 Not Out. Gila, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. I have a, a different name on my screen. Um, Melinda, Melinda Phillips. Oh, yes, you do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, is that okay? Yeah. It's actually, okay. it's, it's just Marcus's um, Saturday night name. He's just forgotten oh, to take it off. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Gila, the AM, what, first of all, what does AM, there are a number of um, uh, abbreviations. What's uh, AM in the Queen's Birthday Honours? I think it's a member of Australia, I think. Isn't it embarrassing? I actually anyway. just looked it up. I just looked it up. It's still it's still member of the Order of Australia. So it's oh, still okay, it's just not it's not the medal of the Order of Australia. It's a member of the Order of Australia. So that's if what it is. Okay. Yeah. If you're an OAM, it's the medal. If, yes. if you're an AM, it's a member. And yes. I have to say, you know, I was really touched to receive it. Congratulations. Um, yeah. It's a great country. It was lovely to get something special from a great country. Yeah. Well, you've obviously done enough. <laughs> To earn that, because they just don't come because you can bowl, you know, get five wickets and an over. Like that doesn't happen. Like you've, you've actually got to do some good things. What did you get your uh, member for? How did? Why did you get that award? Well, um, I'm a retired academic, although I'm still working a bit. So, uh, and in addition to the usual things that academics do, I've done quite a lot of national and international work. So I've, I was. Uh, President of uh, MERGA, which is Mathematics Education Research Group of Australasia. I was president of that and obviously involved in the committee before that. I've been president of um, PME, the um, international group for the psychology of mathematics education. Now, I'm saying these things to indicate that I've done a lot of co committee work, a lot of additional work, a lot of work over and above uh, what academics are paid for because I really think it's important that people get these honours for things that they've done over and above their regular job. So I've done that. I've done quite a lot of other um, pro bono work, working on, on national, uh, local uh, educational committees and also um, you know, non-educational committees. And I've also been a contributor to the um, uh, uh, Jewish community in Melbourne. 
and I play a part in Courage to Care. I don't know if you know anything about that organization. If you don't, really worthwhile on another podcast learning more about that. Um, so I guess uh, I've done a lot of things other than what I get paid for. And, of course, you get enormous, enormous satisfaction from doing all those other things. So I guess that's probably why I've got it. And I think that's the um, – and that is the the – the Gila that a lot of people naturally in your world are going to know Gila is the professional side of your life and the community contribution and everything you, you, as you said, you do with courage to care, which we definitely will mention in this episode, the story behind your life is absolutely phenomenal. I'd be, I'd love it if you were happy to, to share with um, our listeners um, as much of, I suppose the, the upbringing side of things in relation to, um, moving to Lorraine uh, in Holland and living with seven siblings, which you automatically inherited at a very young age. I think it was 18 months. Can you, I know it's, I know you can't ask someone to take us back to when you were 18 months, but would you be kind enough to share with our listeners what you remember, um, your earliest memories of your childhood in that time? Well, I guess strangely enough, most of my earliest memories, most of my earliest memories are related to having to go back to my parents. Now, I was 16 months when I went to my foster family, uh, wonderful, wonderful people, surnamed the Zwanikens. Uh, and even though, you know, during the Second World War, things were really tough in Holland. Uh, you talked about reading war books. I guess many of the listeners will have read war books. I mean, things really were very tough. Um, there was danger everywhere, especially if, you, if you're Jewish or you know, meant to be um, exterminated. Uh, and my foster family very bravely, risk to, to themselves and to their uh, family, decided to take me in. And I was really made a member of the family. You know, I was their, their youngest child, the next youngest in the family, was seven years older than me. So I was spoiled, you know, just even though there were material shortcomings, which I don't really, um, I wasn't aware of, but there was an abundance of love. And so leaving that family and going to my parents, who themselves, they, they did survive the war, but, you know, obviously they were pretty bruised and um, on a regular basis her, you know, got um, information from the Red Cross that yet another family member had been uh, killed during the war. I mean, it, it was a tough time for them. And I was, I'll always be very grateful to my parents for accepting that for a long time what I really wanted to do was to be with my foster family rather than with my parents. And I know in some cases like mine, um, the, the, the biological parents decided that all contact should be cut, up, cut off with the family that looked after their child and saved their child. My parents never did this. My foster family also accepted this. And so my earliest memories really were waiting till I could go back to my foster family for a couple of days. Um, I guess it sounds awful. And no, it I was doesn't. Pretty, <laughs> I was it really fairly, doesn't. Okay, I was a fairly precocious child and I learned to read very early. So the other thing that I re remember, and it's something that in lots of ways has stayed with me, I love reading and I lost myself in reading. Um, and I remember sitting in the garden of my parents, my biological parents' place, really wishing that I was somewhere else and reading. And for me, reading was an opportunity 
not to have to talk to anyone and to create the world that I wanted to create um, so I could stay happy. Uh, my life changed quite a bit when my brothers were born. I have twin brothers who were born when I was almost five and suddenly what was a pretty still home, you know, became um, uh, a lot busier and I was no longer an only child. And, and um, well, Did you want to... Did you feel like you wanted to move back to your foster parents' home even more so when your brothers turned up? Is that something you think, oh, I've had enough now. I've de this definitely broken the camel's back. Get me, get me back to that place. Well, I've always wanted to go back there. Yeah. Um, I look, I guess my parents were pretty um, overwhelmed at having twins. and uh, They probably left me alone a bit more and that suited me no end. But, yes, um, you know, transport would have been really terrible, and I certainly remember one of my foster sisters um, uh, um, dragging or putting me on the bike, and we walked and bicycled back to um, from, from their place to, to to where I lived. Now I didn't do that too often, but I guess you only have to do it once to remember that. And the other thing I remember was actually being taken to the bus, so that probably a bit later, and I'd be put on the bus at one end. And another set of adults, usually my, well, you know, either my parents or my foster family would pick me up. So um, I guess there are some of the memories. One other memory I have that I'm really happy to share. During my foster family lived on a farm and they had a, a large garden. And behind the garden was quite a large meadow. And I remember being really excited when I could hear planes going overhead. And I was told, no, I didn't have to go into hiding. I could go outside and I could look. And I think that's the first time that I really felt that I could actually go with the others and I could go outside. And I still have memories of you know, planes flying over and packages dropping, or black things, I didn't know what they were, but it turned out that they were packages being dropped. And it wasn't just my foster family and me who, who scrambled around the meadows to get them people from the neighbourhood as well. Maybe that's the, the, the clearest memory that I have. Your, um, your recall of, of those times is remarkable. And Gila, I was, as I was reading through the chapter that you wrote in Encourage to Care, uh, I, was often, I stopped often to just kind of picture how you'd be, you know, at 16 months being dropped off at a Catholic family, um, your stepmother having seven other children, and so the expectation was that, well, as a Catholic family, they just have another child, no one's going to even, you know, blink twice. And then the secrecy for the couple of years that you live with them um, until, what, I think you were three or so years old, you know, um, you're, you're living with them. That's what I, This is my short recall, you know, from the book. Um, but, Two and a half years I was with them, yeah. Right. And so, then, you know, so you're there. Uh, you've built a, a very strong uh, connection, close connection with your with your stepmother. And at one point she wants to get you baptised. And I, I found this as like really, you know, what a great pivotal kind of moment because at that point had the priest said, yes, let's baptise her so she doesn't go back to Judaism, uh, you might have become a Catholic. Uh, and maybe that's how you might have stayed. But obviously that didn't happen. It was respected that you were Jewish and you were going back to your your birth family. Let's just up for a second though. I think there's something else um, that's really worth noting and that is that the Catholic priest knew that someone in his neighbourhood was doing something that according to the Nazis they weren't supposed to do. Yes. Um, for a number of years there was a, um, you know, a, um, a money prize on, 
on, on the head of a Jewish person, irrespective of the age. So if wow. you betrayed someone, you got a, a token. But he didn't do that. He did, you know, we hear so many bad things about yeah. what's happened. Uh, yeah. But this is something that I, I can't forget either. Oh, this so is what I was thinking. You know, I was thinking this when I was reading this. I was thinking he, he would have known. And when he asked if you were going to go back to your other family, it wasn't that um, that was mentioned. It was just that he already knew. And so I was like, wow, he... He knew this he, and he kept it a secret. So this is a very special time and this is where people came together. Um, and, I, and I love that, that we see this, you know, beautiful blending of, of cultures and religions that support each other, which I, which I love. In that, in that regard, have you maintained a closeness to a Catholic faith or people in the Catholic um, space or have you mainly um, moved through Jewish circles? What have you done with your life? Well, I guess... Um if you ask me for my religion, I say I'm Jewish and I keep, you know, a certain number of the laws. But I also have enormous respect for um, the Catholic Church. I can see some of their strengths. I mean, we hear a lot about the weaknesses. We hear a lot about the problems. But I think, you know, there are very many very good people then and I think still now. And I guess, you know, you talk to me, talk to me about early memories. One other memory that I have is when I went back to my foster family, sometimes they'd let me go to church with them. Now, my parents weren't too thrilled about that. But I have to tell you, I absolutely loved it. So here I am, perhaps four years old. You know, everything's stark. People wear boring clothes. The food is bland. And you go to church. At that stage, Latin was used. Your um, dress would have been starched. You You had starch in your dress to make it all pristine and flat and ironed. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I just remember. <laughs> it's just potato I just starch. Well, probably. I just remember sitting back, uh, smelling the incense, looking at the, the priest's bright clothes, and people were singing in this peculiar language. I mean, it was like a fairy tale. And I was a bit sad to give that up, I have to tell you. Sure, yeah. Gila, you were just talking with Damien about, um, I suppose, I'm going to call them sliding doors moments. We have a, one, of our, um, one of our former guests on 100 Not Out, Selena Biniaz, uh, is, a, I suppose you would call her a Schindler's List survivor. And we said, gosh, Selena, you've had so many moments where you could have, should have, would have died and you're still here. And she said, yeah, I'm like a cat and I'm purring now. And I look at your own childhood you know first of all you were a very sickly child who was taken to a jewish pediatrician he said look if if uh if if um gila ends up in this transit camp uh she's not going to survive very long so do whatever you can to not this was uh dr simon van Crivald was saying this to your parents you know do whatever you can to keep her out of the transit camp uh one of the ways uh, and then there was also a note that um your father's sister was able to, they were in a camp in Westerbork. They somehow got a note out warning your parents, do whatever you can, but don't end up here. And, and your father's sister and family were sent to Auschwitz and did not survive. You then had your um, paternal grandmother who was very much against breaking up and going into hiding. And thank, thank God your parents were able to, to defy, I suppose, the wishes of, of uh, the parent there. You then had uh, your... Um, uh, Wim, one of your adopted brothers, um, when, when, when you arrived at the family farm, um, he goes to school and says, we've got a new, a new sister, you know, who's, who's 16 months old. And then everyone at school knows this big secret, which you can imagine 
would be so, it's just so risky to have that information in such a town. But thankfully, we assume that they all thought, well, a large Catholic family, so there's just another baby. Then, if you take it another step further, you had um, National Socialist Party members living on the other side of the road from the family farm who, after the liberation, said, well, of course we knew there was a Jewish child across the road, but we had no hard feelings towards it. I mean, just imagine if they did have hard feelings towards you. And, and apparently your adopted parents had parents who were very much uh, almost pro-Nazi and you were hidden in the cupboard when they came over. I mean, imagine if they found you. I mean, there's just so many different times where that's where you kind of have to have a faith in something bigger because really there are so many times where you could have been on the wrong side of that sliding door and we might not be having this conversation right now. Do you ever think about stuff like that? Look, I do. You know, when I talk um, as part of the Courage to Care um, regime, I guess, I say that, and I really mean, mean this, um, when you listen to a survivor speaker, and we're talking about a survivor of um, the Second World War, but there'd be, you know, unfortunately, many other instances. When you listen to a survivor, at various times, you say, you call them sliding doors, I call them good luck. Um, if there weren't good luck uh, episodes in your life, then you wouldn't be here. So, yes, you're absolutely right. You, you know, picked up through the story that I wrote a number of, of key elements that enabled me to survive. And that was because people, from my point of view, did the right thing at the right time. Um, only one of those things needed to have gone wrong and I wouldn't be here. And if you listen to another survivor, the, you know, the good luck stories will be, will be a bit different, but they're always there. And very often they're there because someone just did the right thing at the right time. Do you, do you actually think it's lucky? Is that what you call it, Gila? Is it, uh, I, obviously, I see it as massive fortune. I see it as a blessing. I see it as all of those sorts. Of, I, I think that uh, maybe scratching um, the silver stuff off a scratchy ticket and winning $5, that's lucky. But what you had <laughs> was kind of like you've been blessed, you know. Like you've, there's a purpose for you on the planet, you know. That's kind of the way I see that. I don't know. I, I guess it doesn't really matter what we call it as long as it happens. And as long as we share that and, and, you know, remember, that made a difference to our lives. Can we do something like that for someone else? Which is why I agreed to talk to you. You know, I don't know you. I got a phone Thank call. Thank you. From no, someone. you don't. <laughs> uh, yes, he was worth talking to. And, yep. you know, it, the sort of thing you, you guys are doing can help other people get through this really awful time. It's worth it. Well, that's what I wanted to speak about, you know, at the moment, Gilo, is we're in the midst of a... Very challenging time. In fact, I, I often say to my son, who's 19, he's at Melbourne University at the moment studying commerce, and I say to him, you know, Jackson, you're living in a time that in 20 years' time your children will be doing a history project on. Like, it would be great for you to, you know, note this down, write some, you know, video, some commentary or, you know, put in a some kind of a vault, some things, some newspaper clippings of this time right now because this is a challenging time for the world. Um, it's not a war, but it, it's just such an unsettling phase. Have you found that this period of time has been unsettling for you and your friends or how are you coping with this time? <laughs> well, I guess like everyone else. But I'm going to answer your question in a slightly different way. When, right. I, talk about my, when I talk about my story, which now I, I 
sometimes do, and I always say, to, not always, mostly say to the kids to which I, to whom I'm ta talking, that it's not easy to talk about personal things. That I'm doing this as a way of thinking. That enormous courage that my foster family have. Now, in order to try and sketch to you know a group of 14, 15, 16 year olds what it might have been like during the war in terms of food, I, I talk. I have this little. Um, scene that I sketch and I say I had one photo of myself when I was a baby. Um, it was, I was still with my parents when the photo was taken and I'm holding in my hand a half-eaten biscuit and I say to them and it's true at some stage I said to my mother you know weren't you crazy why won't you ask the photographer not to give you another a biscuit so I'm sitting there properly with a whole biscuit and the answer of course was that biscuits were items of luxury at the time. And so this was a prop of the photographer and he was going to keep it. And, you know, when I was reading about the empty shelves of toilet paper and you name it, just last week or the week before, I thought, well, next time I talk, I, I don't have to talk about the biscuit. I can say, imagine what it was like when you walked into the supermarket and, you know, you particularly wanted whatever it was and it wasn't there and you had to go home. The big difference between then and now is that now you know that the next week or certainly the week after, the item which wasn't on the shelf will be on the shelf. Whereas during the war, goodness only knows how long you have to wait. One year, two, whatever. So you are so right to say to your son, it is part of history. And what's happening to us, you know, is awful. I can't see my five grandchildren except from a huge distance. It saddens me and many other people in, in the same state. Face. But, you know, we don't have a bounty on our head. Um, so strange as it may sound, I look at the restrictions we have. I look at the money we're going to lose. I look at the freedom we lose temporarily. But I'm saying temporarily. And yes, yes, some people will die, but the numbers are insignificant to what happened during those war years. So I'm probably spending more time thinking about that than I normally would. Um, but, you know, you have to put things in, in context. And, yes, it's awful what's happening, but worse things have happened. So I don't know if I answered your question. But I, I actually wanted you to say something like that, so I'm really glad you did because, you know, <laughs> as much as this is a distressing time for people, it's all selfishness. That's, that's you know, not all of it, but there's a lot of it that's selfishness and people going, oh, I can't do this and that. It's really just, you know, so that we don't spread the virus. If people are getting upset that they can't go play I was going to say play golf, but I am legitimately upset I can't play golf. But, you know, it's, it's those sorts of things. But we're not starving. We're not running out of food. Toilet paper is in plentiful supply. In fact, I went to Coles the other day and there's more meat on the shelves than what there ever has been before. So there's just so much available again now. So you're right, it's a very different time. Thanks there's also an example. I heard someone whom I don't know and I'm sure is a wonderful person saying that she and her partner went on a cruise um, just recently and apparently from what I gathered from the interview there was a choice that they, the couple had they could either lose the money that they were going to had intended spending on the on the cruise or go on the cruise and she said I went on the cruise and I'm sorry I wish I hadn't so here is another one of those moments you know you have to weigh up what's important in your life and I'm not judging anyone but it made me just <laughs> You know, it's little things like that that make me think about the decisions my parents had to make. 
my foster family had to make. And yes, things turned out okay in the end. And if they don't, you suffer, just as these people are now suffering with the consequences of going on what should have been a wonderful holiday, but wasn't. One thing was more important to, to them than another. Keep it in context. Gila, I'd love to ask you, we get a lot of, um, I suppose, messages coming through from some survivors, I definitely won't say all, that they definitely don't hate like a lot of human beings do. I know Eddie JQ, it's burnt in my brain, is, you know, hate is a toxic disease. I remember Selena Binia saying hate is corrosive. Uh, with the experiences that, that you went through, um, on the other side of this, and, and maybe even depending on how you've explained your experiences to your children over the years, what is your attitude towards that feeling of hate? Well, I don't like essentialism, right? And I think the sort of hate you're talking about assumes that all people are this or all people are something else, and that's not how I've ever, how I've ever been brought up. So um, the way that I was brought up and the way that I think is that you look at somebody and there are certain trimmings that are not nearly as important as the inner core of the person. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I can certainly understand why a number of the people you've spoken to, a number of the survivors you've spoken to have said, no, I, I, you know, I don't hate. Um, you know, survival depended not only on physical opportunities, but also I think on, on I hate the word mental health, but there is something about that, on, on looking at things and, and being able to see however small a spark, but something that is worth fighting for. So if you hate a group of people, well, what, what good can you see for in them? What's the point of, of even opening yourself to them? So, no, that's, uh, that's not the way I look at people. And often people punish themselves anyway if they do the wrong things. I do believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to talk about, you know, Courage to Care as an organisation because it appears to have some values that I think um, we, we're kind of lost as a society. I often talk to Marcus about this, that uh, from a values perspective, uh, we've lost a lot of our, our ethics and values and morals and we've gone more towards rules and legislation in this country. Uh, so we kind of toe the line, we do what's legal um, not necessarily what's right. Uh, and, but what I see uh, Courage to Care offering is, is something that's totally different to that and it really it, it captures me. I love the idea of it. I love that uh, it's inclusive. I just wonder if you could share a little bit of you know, what you do with that, Gila, um, and what Courage to Care actually means for our community. Uh, and maybe some of our listeners might even investigate that to see what else they can do for the organisation too. Well, I... Um there's a Courage to Care program in New South Wales, which is a little bit different from, the details are different from what we do in Victoria. I can talk, talk about our Victorian program. And the Victorian program is a, a program, uh, a volunteer program, uh, or rather a program staffed by, by, by volunteers. Um, you know, it's a, a non, a non what's the, anyway, it's one of the charitable, charitable organisations uh, and is funded partly by the Victorian Education Department, partly by the Catholic Education Department, and also by um, uh, members of the, of the community. So what happens, and the program uh, is almost 30 years old, and it's clearly evolved over that time. But 
just to give you the bare outlines, the program starts with um, a, a short film that summarizes what happened during the, the Second World War, using the Holocaust, I guess, as a, an enormous, it's probably the strongest, most horrible example of prejudice. Um, and then it does uh, uh, also talk about things that happen in our daily life and uh, it may be a, a bit of a step but you know bullying for example is a, a huge problem around us not just in schools and again it's you now involves prejudice not standing not thinking about other people so anyway first program first part then is a, a short film and um, that's followed by a survivor speaker and I'm one of a, a group of survivor speakers and there's more and more of us die out. There are now some people who are talking, telling their their um, mother's or father's story or an aunt's story. So the idea is still to to personalise um, what's happened during the war. I mean, you know, seeing scenes of many people being killed or being buried is one thing, but actually hearing it, what, listening to someone talk is is um, something else. Then the next part of the program. Um, is much more high tech, and it allows people, or the, the 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 kids, the audience, in small groups to see some other examples of people who stood up um, and showed courage and made and made a a, a, diff, a big difference. And one of the people, for example, that um, Courage to Care talks about is William Cooper. Now, you may or may not about William Cooper. He was um, uh, an Aboriginal who in 19, 1939, you know, you think about how Australia was treating its Aboriginals in terms of independence, in terms of, of thinking of them as, as being just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, he heard about the uh, awful things that were happening in Germany, in particular Kristallnacht, and he wanted to serve a letter on the German consulate in, in Melbourne to protest. You know, he, he knew all about injustice, he knew all about people being treated unfairly. So here's this guy who certainly wasn't Jewish, probably didn't even know, where, possibly didn't even know where Berlin was. Anyway, he's one of the modern examples we talk about. And his grandson is certainly familiar um, about, about the story. And there are other examples. And one of the things that Courage to Care also does is to come up with a local hero who's very often a school student, not always, so it's someone in the local community who's done something very worthwhile. So anyway, that's I'm not giving you the full details, but it gives you an idea that the, the large audience is, is um, uh, broken up into smaller groups. And then for the final section, for the final section, there really is a debriefing, you know, a little bit more talking about what's happened, but also how... What have you learned from what you've seen and heard today that can affect you and make you a better human being? I think it's um, it's a great movement, and and essentially, you know, what you're saying, the Gila, is that the and this is what underpins courage to care is that it informs, and educates Australians about the dangers of prejudice, racism, and discrimination, and I think that's really important because it's so easy to do it. And I remember being, you know, pulled up once upon a time because a little comment was made about a 
one of my best mates. Um, it wasn't even about him. It was just a t- like one of those things that I suppose these days we would call casual racism. And I laughed. And I didn't even think at the time that that might be actually offensive. Um, and, but there's casual sexism. There's casual... Um, there's casual everything and and these days with greater awareness around those sorts of things we can stamp out that because we don't need it there's other ways in which we can have humor so i think it's a great thing and if you're you know if you're aware of casual racism or casual sexism or casual you know um discrimination discrimination, Mm -hmm. then uh and you want to you know work towards stamping it out uh, or you want to teach some people some things, then Courage to Care is a great initiative to go and check out. But I'm going to just shift this a little bit, Gila, because I'd like to find out a few more things about you. Um, I'd, I'd love to know because I'm a nutritionist and a naturopath, and, and so um, I always ask our, our interviewees, what do you eat? Like obviously through the ages you would have eaten a varied diet, but we like to understand how people live well and how do they, what are they doing that keeps them so successful? So what do you eat for breakfast, lunch, and tea, Gila? You mean now? Yeah, these days. Okay. All right. Well, um, I vary it. We all, I've, I say we because um, I have breakfast 99 times out of 100 with my, with my husband together and we don't read the paper. We actually look at each other and talk. Oh, the only exceptions, nice. <laughs> the only exceptions are um, the two days a week that he plays golf. If he has a really <laughs> days when he could play golf, he has a really early start, then maybe I don't join him for breakfast. I have mine at you know, a more civil hour, like half past six, six o'clock. But usually we have breakfast. Okay, so we, we start off either with um, a homemade, um, I don't know, orange juice or half a grapefruit or a fruit smoothie. Uh, and then we have either one slice of toast with, a variety of things on it. It's amazing how many different things you can put on toast. So maybe cheese <laughs> on half a slice and then, I don't know, something sweeter on the other half a slice. So that's one breakfast. The other breakfast is he still has that, but I have muesli that morning. But we have a very limited breakfast and then we have a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, we try, try not to nibble too much during the morning, but we, oh, at the moment, since we're both at home, we have morning tea. And we might have one biscuit with that. Lunch is, um, well, it varies. It might be a salad or it might be another slice of bread with no different things on it. It might be some, I don't know, tin tuna or some smoked salmon or a boiled egg. Um, and dinner, well, uh, always a salad. Always at least two vegetables. I love it. Um, love it. Usually meat. Um, I don't cook fish very often because when I eat, I don't eat meat out, I keep a kosher. I don't know if you know what that means, but yes. anyway, so I eat a lot of fish out. So I tend not to eat fish, but you know we. So we have maybe well, rarely do we have a three-course meal, but we might have soup and whatever I've said: vegetables, meat, potatoes, um, and fresh fruit. Or we may not have soup, whatever, uh, and then before bit later we have another cup of tea or coffee and that's it do you have ice cream sometimes oh, sometimes good good, good. <laughs> excellent oh this is great gila i'm gonna just, i'm gonna rattle off a list of different diets that a lot of people espousing will keep you living forever and I just, i'd like to know whether or not you've done them um if so just say yes or no um have you done the carnivore diet no 
Okay. Have you been vegan? I've been vegetarian. Not no. never vegan. Not vegan. Okay. Have you done keto? I don't even know what it is. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going. We're <laughs> off to a flyer here. Um, and have you done breatharian? No. No, okay. So the reason why I wanted to ask you those questions, Gil, is because I consider you to be successfully aging. I think you're doing a great job. And people out there are suggesting these days that you probably need to take about 150 supplements per day and follow a ketogenic eating program for the rest of your life, which means no ice cream, no bread, no potatoes, uh, no dairy, um, none of those sorts of things uh, for the whole of your life, um, but take 150 different supplements and you'll live forever. Without any proof, this is what they're saying. So you wouldn't subscribe to that? No, I wouldn't. And in fact, I hadn't thought about it. But um, one of the things that I was taught by example, both by my foster family and my parents, is to cherish food. You know, you think about what you, you have. Um, yes. I, I remember my foster family, they had the seven children, um, you didn't have to eat everything that was on the table, but then you just went hungry. I mean, either you ate it or you didn't, full stop. <laughs> That's right. And on the farm, you know, if you, as I mentioned that my foster family lived on the farm. They had a lot of berry bushes and, and some fruit trees. Well, you know, if you wanted some fruit, you had it. I remember my parents after the war making it clear to me, I don't think they said that explicitly, but that, you know, it was too expensive to waste food. So you bought what was reasonable to eat, you thought about what appeared to be a balanced diet, and you ate it. You didn't throw things away. Um, although I do remember, I have to admit, that I was sometimes sent away from the table because I wouldn't eat all my food. But then, you know, I went upstairs. We were living in a two-story house, and I chucked it out, and the birds had put up their But the answer is, I, I, you know, I, I haven't been brought up to think that if you buy sensibly and think you know what what you feel like eating and you don't eat excessively you don't need anything else and go for a walk you know get your vitamin b d sorry when you go outside so i'm not a very good example of all these no diets. you are you are a great example of it there's no need for it marcus wants to That's ask you right. one more question before we wrap up and uh, i think it's a good one and I think, well, I think as you're saying, Gila, you're not a very good example. You are the perfect example. We still cannot find Gila, a 100-year-old vegan who's been vegan since <laughs> they were born. We can't find a centenarian on the paleo diet, on the Atkins diet, on the South Beach diet, on the Pritikin diet. We can't find any of these graceful ages. You're 78. You look about 48. You're doing an incredible job. We just can't find any of these older people that are on these very edgy diets. So what I would like to finish on, I've kind of got, I've got about five questions, but I'm just going to ask, I'm going to ask one. I'm just going to tell everyone, just because you've got such an incredible view on the world, don't think that Gila is all high and mighty because of the challenges she's gone through in her life. Gila actually cannot go to Europe in June to go and visit her Zwanikan uh, siblings uh, that, the, that she lived with. Um, during the war because of the coronavirus. So this is an episode that is dedicated to providing the context of, the, of perspective in our lives at this time. Um, but even Gila, with their incredible attitude to life, is impacted um, in, you know, in, in, in ways because, as you were saying to me before we recorded, uh, Gila, these siblings are a lot older um, than you are and, and who knows how much longer they'll be around. But I want to ask you, the next generation, I was reading your chapter last night thinking, 
you know, there might only be 10, maybe 20 more years maximum of Holocaust survivors being able to tell their story in the first hand. From a legacy perspective, you've got children, you've got grandchildren. What are your feelings about such an important message having a, a sense of um, uh, how, do, how does it remain perpetual given that first-hand survivors are, um, won't be here in, in a generation from now? Well, um, uh, I've told you at some stage that I'm a, a, an academic, I'm an educator. I think education is hugely important and part of that involves history. Uh, so one way of making sure that the important message messages remain is that we encourage our youth to be educated, to learn, to sample other experiences, um, not to rely on secondary or tertiary sources, but find out things for themselves as much as possible. So I don't know if that's the sort of answer you were expecting, but I think that's probably the only way of keeping the message alive, making sure that primary sources, and I'll say again, primary sources are retained and that people use them. Uh, well, I know. I, I still, my oldest child is 10, my youngest is eight months, and uh, I don't want to sound ghoulish, but I really look forward to the day when I feel that Maya, my oldest, is mature enough that I can educate her on some of the really the biggest atrocities that have happened in the human race. I don't want to do it when she's 10, but I don't want to rely or depend on school to teach her because I don't know how that's going to be taught. But I think what you're saying is it's incumbent on all of us, all of the listeners, well, everyone in their own family dynamics to ensure that the message of what happened and what that does for our own behaviour as human beings continues to be shared. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Gila, on behalf of Damien and myself and all of our listeners, we thank you so much for sharing um, your life story with us on this episode, particularly at this time where, you know, people are down in the dumps. They're happy one day, sad the next, feeling like life's over. And I think you've given us a really good shot in the arm to get some perspective on our life. And uh, we can't thank you enough for, again, having the courage to share your story with us. And I do want to give courage to care an almighty plug. And I have a feeling this won't be uh, the last time we talk about Courage to Care on this podcast, uh, to have Courage to Care come and visit you and to get some first-hand experiences from people that have gone through um, the Holocaust and other, and other um, challenges through war, go to couragetocare.org.au to find out all the information there in New South Wales, Victoria, Western Australia and Queensland. Uh, Gil Alita, thank you so much for joining us on 100 Not Out. Well, good luck and stay healthy. <laughs> we will. And to you, Damien Christoph, thank you for being the beginning of this uh, episode, Damo. Without you and your love of golf and playing with Morris Efron, uh, we wouldn't be having the benefit of chatting with Gila today. Thanks, Piercy. Good on you, mate. And well, well run. Good just interview. Before you, just before you go, yes, did Morris yes. ever, ever live in Lucas Street? I don't know. I don't know. I'll have I'll send him a text message before we get off this and we'll find out. <laughs> because if he did, then we lived in the same street for a number of years and talked oh. about lighting moments. But it may not be <laughs> oh, that's what we'll have to go and find out. That's what we'll yes. have to go and find out. To you, our loyal listeners, please go and share this podcast with your family and friends. Make sure you show them how to listen to podcasts, open up a whole new world for them. Thanks again for your support as always. And continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.